Welcome to Rules of the Frame. I am your host, Connor Reed, and here's your other host, John Skinner. Glad to be back. Yeah. This is the one that are you the most excited for? Or like in the series, which one are you the most excited for? Excited to watch, yes. I okay. enjoy I enjoy ripping apart bad movies, you know. Mm-hmm. So so but this this won't be that. No. Yeah, this is a break uh for the last however many that we've been doing in our series previous series. And in this new series. So for those of you who are listening in for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. We are on our second film of the top five films of the 2010s, where we have kind of been exploring what really like makes the top ranks for each decade and judging that based on different criteria. So the last episode was Avengers Endgame, which is the highest grossing film of the 2010s. No longer the highest grossing film of all time. Avatar beat it again. And now we are covering Gravity because throughout the entire 2010s, it won the most Oscars. It didn't win Best Picture, though. So that's interesting. Just kind of we're just kind of evaluate it from that lens, though, of kind of the critical eye of you know, not that the Academy is the end-all be-all to everything, but a lot of people take it seriously and see it as kind of like the highest, one of the highest film honors that you can get. So yeah, we're going to just dig in and figure this film out from that perspective. And we have with us today, special guest, my girlfriend, Claire Warrington. Hello. Claire's back from about a year ago now, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit less than a year, I Mm -hmm. think, because we maybe recorded that episode in like may or something or april but she was last on our ordinary people episode and that was back whenever we had riley as the co-host so now john is here ushering in the new era and ushering in the new era of claire yeah exactly (laughs) um yes my name is claire as connor said and i'm his girlfriend so part of the job description is watching films so um i wasn't super into film as a hobby until we started dating um but, you know, just have definitely grown in my appreciation. I've always loved storytelling. I was more of a reader than a film watcher growing up. So I think that this is just kind of an expansion of, of that love of story and a new medium for it. So I really enjoyed exploring that. And the reason that I really wanted to be on this episode and the reason that I was on Ordinary People is I'm really interested in how grief and loss is portrayed in film. And so... Um, this definitely stands out to me as a film that deals with grief in some really fascinating ways. So whenever Connor mentioned that he would be, you know, that they would be doing this film, I jumped on that. And I, I had last seen it, I think, when I was a senior in high school. So that would have been in hmm, 2014, 2013, 14, somewhere in there. And so it had been a while, but it still stood out in my memory so strongly as a movie that really hit me hard when it comes to grief and loss. And so I wanted to revisit it now. Um, you know, seven or eight years later and evaluate it more from that critical perspective with a deeper appreciation for film. Yep. Excited to have you on here. And John, do you want to start us off with a summary of the film? 
Absolutely. Uh, on a space shuttle mission to the Huddle, uh, Hubble Telescope, first-time astronaut Dr. Ryan Stone and veteran Matt Kowalski uh, install a piece of medical equipment on the Hubble Telescope. A lighthearted conversation with uh, Mission Control in Houston turns serious when it is discovered that a Russian uh, satellite missile strike has created a chain reaction and there is a cluster of debris headed their way. The mission is aborted and Stone and Kowalski struggle to return to the shuttle. Before they make it back, the space junk destroys the shuttle and the telescope and sends Stone spinning untethered into the dark. When she regains her composure, Kowalski contacts her and finds out where she is. He grabs her with his jetpack, and they head back to the shuttle. They discover their entire crew dead and the shuttle completely destroyed, so they head to the International Space Station to try and escape. On the way, Kowalski tries to get Stone to talk about life back home to calm her down, as her oxygen levels are dangerously low. But she reveals that she lost a child in a tragic accident, and that she has nothing to look forward to at home. When they reach the station, Kowalski runs out of fuel in his pack, and they are forced into attempting to grab the station at high speed to stop themselves. Stone gets tangled in a deployed parachute from the only remaining Soyuz escape craft and grabs onto Kowalski before he floats away. Matt realizes that he is carrying them both away from the station and that only by sacrificing himself and letting go can the resulting opposite force propel Stone back to the station and save her. He lets go and tells Stone how to get back home. As she grows tired from her CO2 levels rising, uh, he walks her through how to get home, and then just before she enters the station, he is stunned into silence by the beauty of the sunrise of the Ganges River as he floats past the horizon. Stone enters the station before her suit CO2 levels kill her, and tries to contact Kowalski and hears no reply. She uh, escapes on a Soyuz before an explosion destroys the inside of the station, but before she can leave, she has to rush to spacewalk outside the craft to cut it free from its parachute, which is tying it to the station. While outside the ship, she barely survives the space junk field returning and shredding the station to bits. She prepares to launch towards the Chinese station, but finds that her Soyuz has no remaining fuel. She tries desperately to contact Houston, and instead talks with a long-range radio operator somewhere on Earth who doesn't understand her, doesn't speak English, and has no idea who she is or where she is. Despite the language barrier, she has her first real human connection of the mission, and grows emotional, asking her unknown friend to mourn her and pray for her when she dies. As the man on the radio sings to his child, she shuts her ship down and prepares to die when Kowalski, miraculously still alive, enters the ship. Kowalski reveals she can use the landing jets on the landing pod to propel the ship. He asks her if she wants to stay or if she wants to live life before he disappears and is revealed to have been a vision in her head. She uses his advice and reaches the Chinese station telling Matt to speak to her daughter and tell her she isn't quitting. Using a fire extinguisher as a jetpack, she enters the Chinese station and boards its escape craft as the station around her falls apart in re-entry. She separates and begins re-entry in the landing pod, unsure if the craft has been damaged or will make it to Earth. 
She crashes in the ocean and barely escapes when the landing pod sinks into the water and swims to the surface and stumbles onto land, finally home. Why am I tearing up from just your summary of it? This movie kills me. Uh. <laughs> very good summary, John. <laughs> Thank you. Very, very good movie to summarize. Yeah. I apologize in advance if I cry at some point during this podcast. This movie just gets me. Uh. <laughs> right, John, what's your what's your two words? I, I'm gonna say it's it's kind of simple. I'm gonna say amazing art. That's because uh, it's amazing, and when I say amazing, I mean like I think it really the art part. It it tells an amazing emotional story with with not a lot of moving parts. Honestly, you don't have that much dialogue. It's pretty simple, and yet you really have an effective character arc tied to what is a way more entertaining, visceral, cra- well-crafted like action movie, basically, action thriller, that is so amazing as an experience that you never have that tied to such emotional weight. You know, just the, the thrill of it and then the, the weight of it are, are two things that just typically don't come together. This was the single greatest movie-watching experience I've ever had in a theater, where, like... I mean, we we watched Silence. That was really good. But like, this this was a movie theater experience. Like, it you had to be there. But when you don't watch it in a theater, it still holds up really, really well. Claire, I don't know how emotional you typically get from movies. We'll we'll talk through this. But I don't. <laughs> I don't get emotional. Right mm-hmm. when a movie almost makes me cry, that's like a big deal. This move. This is this is a short list of movies that Creed, you too, like you, I know, experience movies in a very intense way, obviously. Like you really internalize empathetically whatever you're you're watching. I almost always enjoy a movie in theater, but I almost never like, I'm in this middle cyn- cynical, like I'll enjoy it, but I'm not going to like get emotional. You know, I'm not going to react to it. And so a movie that moves me to tears every time I watch it, there's like a short list, like I can count on one hand. And this is definitely one of every time I cry a little bit every single time I watch the movie because Stone's character is just so you have a lot of character building in a character that for most of the movie is not opening up at all. And so at the end when she's completely a changed person is really it hits you like a ton of bricks, I think. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, my two words for the film are two separate words, acceptance and reintegration in that. I mean, like you were saying, kind of her character arc throughout it is kind of accepting what has happened and that there's still more life to go. And that's kind of like kind of the point of Kowalski's character is he is such the opposite person of her. I mean, even just from the get go of he's just like talking nonstop, like playing music, like just a very distracting character. But then, yes, she's like, nope, I don't want the music, you know, and like, I don't really want to talk and like. And just very much like in her her shell of grief and struggling, and um, he kind of gets her through that through traumatic events as well. And of just saying like, you know, in order to survive, we need to do this, and we need to just kind of calm down. And like, I think I remember kind of like a criticism of like one of my friends whenever the movie came out, 
And I was like saying like how great of a performance she was giving. She's like, what? She just had to like breathe heavily the whole time. I'm like, no, she's doing so much more than that. (laughs) But even the fact that like so much of her character is like struggling to breathe too, Mm -hmm. I think is just such an important character piece. And Mm -hmm. just that she does that like so effectively. And like even just kind of like the yelling and screaming, like producing effective yells and screams as an actor is a pretty tough thing to do, especially if that's like a big chunk of the acting, especially if it's an experience that you've never had and you never will have. Like, you don't know what it's going to be like to, like, be rocketing and spinning into space. Like, that's never going to happen to you. And the fact that she just, like, portrays it, like, so convincingly, even the part, like, that I'm just amazed with, sorry to get too into this, but (laughs) whenever the first time, whenever she's just flipping and rolling over and over again and you just see, like, her, like, moving her head around, like, she's not in a rig, like, spinning her upside down multiple times that's literally just her like i think she's being rocked back and forth but just like the believableness of like breathing so heavily and then just like stopping and then just kind of like oh remembering like you have to breathe and just like these simple little actions that she does so yes acceptance and then reintegration because that i feel like that's the latter half of the film where the first half she was just like so disconnected from humanity and i mean literally in the sense that she is away from everyone and whenever she's in the pod talking to Anigak and the part that always gets me that I always cry at is like whenever she starts howling just like the lone wolf out on its own like separated from the rest of the pack and just like going down to like the most primal instinct to be around others and at the beginning of her just being like you know I'm up here for the silence and like kind of like separation and then that moment whenever she's just like literally begging for like any sort of contact and getting it in the end and I think that's just beautiful. I feel like it's really hard to talk about this film without talking about Sandra Bullock's performance. And I want to circle back and just really, really talk about her performance. But um, first, I want to say my my two words. Um, my two words are universal particulars. And that's what I remembered so much from this film. And to me, this is, especially when you're talking about these really primal, really core human emotions the most effective thing a film can do is show the universal experience through a very particular story. I think there's just so much going on visually and story-wise that highlights that. Um, Like literally this person, kind of like Connor said, out in space, able to look at the entire planet and all of the people down there who are sharing these same experiences, whether we know it or not. And then showing this one isolated story of a mother's a mother's grief in the middle of that is so striking. And yeah, I'm going to cry at some point. Man, this movie just just kills me. Um, and exactly what you're saying, John, there's there's something about this film that, okay, yes, I cry in a lot of films. Um, I'm pretty, I get pretty emotionally invested. But I don't know this, um, I don't know if it's just something with Alfonso Cuaron, just like understanding emotion and storytelling like nobody else. Um I, I watched Roma. We watched Roma recently, and I had a very similar experience where I I knew I was going to cry, but I started crying so much sooner than I expected, and so much sooner because I feel like there's a lot of films that you watch and you're like, okay, that's the scene where you're supposed to cry, right? And you know, even to an extent, Gravity has has that, but I don't know, like with Roma, not to spoil it too much, but you know, the point where she goes into labor, which is like kind of. 15 minutes really before the actual emotional climax of the film, I just started crying and I didn't even know why I was crying. And so when it finally does hit that emotional climax, it was such a weightier experience throughout, you know, throughout a longer portion of the movie. And there's just something that he does. I can't quite put into words. Um, 
I literally wrote it down because um, at 26 minutes and 48 seconds is where we get the line that, oh my gosh, Sandy just delivers so perfectly where she says, I had a daughter. And from that point for the next hour and four minutes of the film, it was just like a constant stream of tears um, for me because that that line just hit so hard um, and really just creates. I mean, that's that's the emotional thesis of the whole film is I had a daughter and now I'm floating in space. And I think that this film kind of what you were saying, John, and you were so right, is that this film is perfect because it works so perfectly on two levels and it doesn't cut any corners on either dimension. Um, This is a thrilling action space movie that, you know, you can enjoy kind of on that surface level, but it is also a deeply intimate personal look at the human experience of grief and it doesn't hold back in either of those spaces and delivers it with such excellence. And so, with so much commitment to each side of the story. Cause I feel like, <laughs> like there's a lot of really crappy um, space movies that I kind of love. And there's definitely that moment where they're just there to make you cry. I'm sorry. But every time that Bruce Willis looks at Ben Affleck and says, I love you. And I think of you as my son and Liv Tyler is in like the radio control room sobbing. Armageddon makes me cry every single time. And I know that I'm such a wimp for it. But like when I take a step back, I'm like, this movie is ridiculous. This is such a guilty pleasure. This is such a like emotionally manipulative movie, like carrying me all this way just for the cheap like tears at the end. And I know that. But I feel like gravity is just the antithesis of that in every way and just delivers it with such, such honesty um, and dedication throughout the whole film. Um, Yeah, I, I think I can get more into why I think this is perfect on the grief level, but I would say just kind of from that larger level, um, exactly what you're saying, John, it, it's so committed to both stories that it's telling and it makes so both stories so intertwined and interdependent. Yeah. Well, I can get into our our now in film history segment before we get really deep into the discussion, because I know it's just going to be an endless stream of things after that. (laughs) Um, So this movie comes out in 2013. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Alfonso Cuaron had been working on this film for like four and a half years Mm -hmm. prior to it, where him and his son Jonas were wanting to make a movie together. Like, I think his son said something along the lines of like, I don't really like your movies, dad, or something like that, which <laughs> is crazy. Um, and so I think he he comes up with a story of just wanting to tell. They had like two themes. Uh, the main theme was adversity and like overcoming adversity, really. And I think the other one was like isolation. And so whenever they first conceptualized this film, they didn't think of it as like a space movie. They're like, it could be set in the desert. They could be stranded in the ocean. And then I think Jonas had like a vision of just an astronaut like spinning into the blackness of space. And then they're like, okay, we have to set it in space and just kind of building everything off of that. And he kind of describes it also as well of like in comparison to James Cameron with Avatar, where this had kind of been something he'd been wanting to do for a while, but just like the technology wasn't really ready for it. And so they finally reached this point. It had been in development for so long and they had so many different actors and actresses go through and they pre-visualized the whole movie. And this is in kind of the end of, so far at least, who knows what's going to happen after this. This is like the end of 
I guess, Cuaron's American and kind of more blockbuster sort of career because he had his start in um, just like these indie Mexican films that are just amazing, very personal, very intimate, very down to earth, like stories of like friendship and love and self-acceptance and um, coming of age stories and that sort of stuff. And then he kind of breaks in and does more American films. Like he does an adaptation of Great Expectations and The Little Princess. And then he really starts to get known. I mean, aside from Itumama Tambien, but with uh, he directs the third Harry Potter film, which I think really launches him forward in Hollywood's eyes. And really, I mean, starts to take like a darker and more mature tone and really sets up the Harry Potter series for what it becomes afterwards. And kind the of only good that. movie. <laughs> it is definitely <laughs> the best of the Harry Potter films. Um, but then he also directs an amazing post-apocalyptic movie called Children of Men that is just devastating and brutal and incredible. And I love that film so much. He finally gets to work on this and partners with Warner Brothers. They release it. It has a hundred million budget and it makes like over 700 million. And I think they weren't really expecting this to be such like a big blockbuster hit and also like wide critical acclaim too. But I just remember it just smashing. And like, as soon as it came out, like kind of, this was whenever I was starting my freshman year and just hearing in my cinema classes of like, oh, this incredible like technical achievement and gravity. But then other people just being like, oh my gosh, it's like one of the best movies I've seen. So it comes out, makes a ton of money. Then it also gets nominated for 10 Oscars and wins seven of them, which is just craziness. Doesn't win Best Picture, but that's okay. No, it's not. Yes, it is. If, if hey, anything what, what were to beat, beat it, 12 Years a Slave oh, yeah. deserves to win it. I couldn't be... Yeah, yeah. I, I forget. Yeah, this is what happens. Yeah. All, all the good movies are in one year, and then and then the next mm. year, it's some, some movie about Hollywood wins. <laughs> <laughs> so, has huge acclaim, all that sort of stuff, and now... He's back to his roots, and he made Roma, and it's amazing, and I'm very interested to see where he goes with it. Other films to have come out in 2013 are Men of Steel, Iron Man 3, The Great Gatsby, uh, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog, The Wolverine, Star Trek, Into Darkness, Snowpiercer, Under the Skin, Elysium, Ender's Game, Oblivion, After Earth, and Pacific Rim. So there's a lot of like kind of franchise stuff, and so I felt like this was just very much a breath of fresh air. But it also kind of helps usher in kind of the new like space age because in the early 2000s, there were a lot of space movies, especially in the 90s with like Armageddon Mm -hmm. kind of kicking that off. Independence Day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But really, Sunshine. Yeah. Really, the only, it will only last until like 2004. And then there's just kind of this Mm -hmm. dead space. And then that's a uh, space thing too. Ha ha ha. Nice. Very good. (laughs) But there's a couple other like, more space movies avatar i think also kind of brings that back in as well because it's such a huge hit and studios are like okay we can make space movies profitable again so other stuff like moon comes out prometheus the new star trek series john carter apollo 13 all that sort of stuff but man i mean i think this just kind of brings like a seriousness to it and Mm -hmm. that's really stuck around in sci-fi currently and space movies and kind of brought like a maturity to it Mm -hmm. as well instead of the big, it has the big bombasticism, but like also it's more realistic than like Armageddon, you know. Just a bit. You Just mean wait, bit. you mean it's not realistic that if there was a um asteroid hurtling towards Earth the size of Texas, that they would train some oil drillers and in the course of two weeks send them up to drill into the asteroid and put just a butt ton of C4. <laughs> 
I know the plot so, of that movie way too well. <laughs> the criteria it's in the Criterion Collection. I know. It's yeah, ridiculous. I know. I love it. And I want and it. And I, I choose to believe that it's in the Criterion Collection because of the legendary uh, Ben Affleck thing. Yep. He talks about that in the in the the commentary where he tells us. I'm sure you guys heard the story. I where, haven't. Please tell me. Oh, no. He's talking to. Um, Michael Bay about the movie and he's like he's like so like why are they training oil drillers to be astronauts instead of training astronauts to be drillers yeah. and he, he tells him to shut the f up like, he like he's like shut the f up and get out of here and he's just, just like totally not having it but like so Ben Affleck the whole time is like for a, uh, has a long like discussion on this commentary about how he's like so yeah none of this really makes sense <laughs> but <laughs> but but he was clearly upset with me saying pointing out that that's incredible <laughs> and so he did not want to talk about it oh that's so good he knew he knew it I, was dumb which I feel like th- sorry this is a little side tangent but I feel like Michael Bay. In his movies, he has like one big hurdle that the audience has to get over. And if they get over that, then they're in. Like, I guess it was just like the Transformers series. It's like, okay, I guess it makes sense that these giant metal aliens came into Earth from outer space and turned into our cars. Yep, that makes sense. You know, and there's just like this believability that I mean, I actually disbelief. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like honestly applaud him for it Mm. because that is a hard thing to do. And there's a lot of movies that don't do it effectively. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one of the reasons why his movies are very effective is he makes just a very wildly implausible thing. Pretty plausible and Mm -hmm. uh, not plausible in the sense. I feel like James Cameron kind of does a better idea or a better version of that where his Mm. movies are much more kind of believable. I guess with Michael Bay films, you're like, you know you're going to be in for a ride. And you're like, yep, I just kind of have to accept things as they go. Mm-hmm. Michael Bay, you question the premise five minutes in. Cameron, it's like 10 years later, you'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, they could have fit on the door. You know, like, like <laughs> it takes a while for you to to, to realize that there's, there is stuff in Cameron's stuff. And I think that's a good segue because I do think, I think it's inevitable to compare this to Avatar which we will talk about in a future series inevitably at some point. But honestly, I can think of two. The other thing, trend that was happening at the time was the, you know, talking about how much money it made. There was the 3D craze and there was the make it an IMAX craze. And this was the only movie besides Avatar that I can think of that did both. And it was like, there was an era where all the crappy live action Disney movie adaptations of stuff were... And and you know, and then Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Two was like the new one or Wonka or whatever it was called was in 3D, and like they made a lot of money because everyone had to see it in 3D, right? And so that was a a trend. But this is the only movie in that space that I remember totally being. You had to see it in 3D, had to see it in IMAX if you could, and it was totally worth it. Uh, But it was still good art, you know. It wasn't a gimmick. Because this is one of my favorite movies to watch, but it is it is my favorite movie to have seen in, in a theater. Like, if you could tell me, I'm going to give you free, you know, you can go magically watch whatever movie you want in whatever theater you want right now, I would probably say Gravity in IMAX 3D. Yeah. Well, I remember we watched this film together because you had seen it, and we d- briefly discussed this on the Avengers episode, 
uh, the end game episode since we now have two, but it was like my freshman year. This is like one of my earliest memories from college actually is you having seen it and just saying like, we have to go watch this movie now. And I can't remember who else was there from our group, but just going to see it. And we saw it in the Asylum Spring 6, which was, you know, a really Fine. crappy theater to see it in. Yeah. But I just still remember being so unbelievably immersed in this dinky little theater. And I think we were maybe the only people in that theater. And I, no joke, literally was on the edge of my seat until like for the entire time. And remember like at the end, whenever it finally rolls credits, just being like, <gasps> and like actually being <laughs> able to breathe because it was just like so immersive in that sense. And you're just so surrounded by everything. And just like, I mean, literally the tension in that was unlike anything else I had experienced in a movie. And I mean, it's still to this date, I can't think of a movie that has had me that tense and that emotional throughout the entire ride. And like literally was just, you know, there's points when you're watching a movie in a theater and you might get like a little bit distracted and kind of like look away and like taken out of the experience. That movie, I was like glued to the screen the entire time and literally could not look away. It was astounding. And so even in that dinky little theater, it was also still one of the best film going experiences I've ever had. Guys are making me sad that I didn't see it in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a re-release, I'm sure. Wait, They're Creed, better. have you seen it? Have you seen it in IMAX 3D? No, I wish. You did not? Okay. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's Two that'll years. happen it's eventually. It's the 10-year anniversary. I'm sure they'll do it. Oh, that mm-hmm. will be so good. I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to that. Uh, but it, that's the other thing, though, is it scales. Like, there are some shots in here that if when I saw it, I didn't think about this, but, it, you know, seeing it in IMAX, you would not think that's not going to work in a smaller screen. But it does. I mean, I, I think this movie sort of proved you can make a movie for IMAX that's cinematic and it will. it's not a, you know, a NASA documentary or a, a documentary about race cars or what literally whatever, you know, the old gimmicky IMAX. I and mean, they're fine, but like they're they're visually made for IMAX and they don't. You go see them in IMAX and that's it. You don't go see in a normal theater. And this totally proved that you can build for that and it still works in a normal theater. You know, those those techniques are worth it still. Um, you know, that's led to... No, I'm not going to say that. Never mind. I was going to say innovative... No, tech- no, no, no. You got to say it now. <laughs> innovative, you know, it, there's breakthroughs, you know, people standing on the shoulders of giants like, you know, Zack Schneider doing doing uh oh my gosh. justice league in four three which is you know the, the, i don't the get future, it why like, the future is square okay because of imax yeah, good for him that <laughs> he was able to beat the system in that sense but why all that power and he makes a square movie anyway <laughs> all that money wasted on those cameras that shoot like ultra wide like they call it the schneider cut because they cut the sides off the sides of the movie off. Anyway. Nice. That, that's the actual cut. There's no, He didn't add any footage. There's, he literally they just did, trimmed they the did, sides. And they didn't cut any footage at all. That's the yeah. only, They just literally cut every frame so they could call it a cut. Anyway, people, you talk about Avatar. People are like, uh, you know, I never saw Avatar. And so even when I criticize Avatar, I sort of, in the back of my mind, have this doubt of like, I didn't really see it. I didn't really experience it. Whereas... You want to see gravity in the full, but you are experiencing it because it's the story is the biggest part of it. And everything else is. Yeah, it's just that it's not only that 
the translation from IMAX to regular theater. It's the translation from a theater to your television at home, I think, holds up so well. A few weeks ago, we watched Thor Ragnarok, and which, I mean, I get it why it's Connor's favorite Marvel movie. Um, Taika Waititi's brilliant. I enjoyed him a lot in it um, and just his humor throughout it. But as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is such a movie that, like, this movie is so underwhelming on, like, a home TV. You know, this is, it It was created to play on the big, you know, on the big screen in a packed theater with everyone reacting to everything. And when you translate it to the home theater, it just really falls flat visually. You know, it's not, it's not stunning. It's not beautiful. It's not, um, yeah, it just doesn't have the technique, I think, to carry it through that. Um, it just wants the kind of bombastic, you know, premiere feeling, whereas gravity is just so carefully crafted um, from beginning to end that it still, you know, evokes so much emotion and so much tension when you're watching it at home. And I can't even imagine like, man, I will be just a, a hot mess if I ever see it in theaters um, when, when I see it in theaters. But um, yeah, again, I just think that speaks to the quality of the film that it translates so so effortlessly into different settings. I think it's the story, but also mm. something that scales better than visuals is the sound design. Is mm-hmm. I mean, we haven't mm-hmm. talked about yeah. it, but the whole <laughs> like the balance between like he's not he does what's the there's a cinema term for like when you everything's happening on screen in the real world, right? You don't have music, you don't have whatever. He doesn't oh, like do that. Oh, like diegetic sound? Yes, diegetics. Yeah, he does not do that. But he has a music and then he sort of crafts the sound in a way that somewhat follows the rules of space, right? So that was the whole, that was a bit that was a big thing when the movie was coming out that everyone was hyping was you can't hear things in space. You can only hear what you're touching, you know? That gives you a sense of uh an unrelenting threat through the movie yeah Yeah, throughout the movie that's really what drives home the emotional stuff because her character sort of like you said offhand reveals the tragedy at the beginning but it's almost like she's almost in a haze right like she's just saying like i used to have a kid and that's what hits you heart so hard is that she doesn't almost like she's not breaking down she's just saying i used to mad yeah i used to care about stuff and and then it takes a while for her you're rooting for her but it takes a while for her emotional journey to kind of kick into gear. And so there's this tension of like, you know, before her arc can finish, she's going to get killed. And that threat is, it's not the emotional threat that gets you till the end. It's, it's the, it's the physical threat from the sound more than anything. And, and it gives it space. And then you have the spot where she's in the Soyuz. And I feel like that's where everything, you know, obviously comes home the movie finally pauses and then you focus on the characters. But until you get to that spot, it's the sound that's carrying a lot of it, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just amazed too. So on the the Blu-ray and maybe the DVD of it too, I'm not sure. But on the Blu-ray, there's a version of it called the silent space mode, which is nowhere near as good as the actual movie. But basically it takes out almost all of the music. I thought it took out all of it, but it's still like for the all the tense moments where it does like the lead up to the rip. And then, like, drops, it still has that in there, which I was like, okay, come on, you should have just, like, left that out so it literally could have been just the in-house sound. But there's, like, so many tiny little things in there that you don't recognize that, like, Mm. just adds to the moment. Like, whenever she is getting to the the Chinese station at the end, 
whenever she's trying to hold on to it, anytime she like touch it, like her arm touches it, you hear like the like the rumbling of the ship. And then whenever she like lets go of it, it stops. And then just like just that those tiny little details of like anytime she comes in contact with something, you hear like the reverberations of that as well, like and everything touching that. And like just one of my favorite bits at the very beginning, whenever she's just drilling and you kind of hear like the faint vibrations mm-hmm. of the drill instead of the full effects of the drill. I think it's just masterful. And I just can't imagine how long it must have taken like all of the Foley guys to watch every single inch of the frame to see everything that was animated in there that comes into interaction with anything that just like affects it. I mean, it just astounds me the amount of work that they had to do in there because there's so much in the frame. It's not like sparse with anything. It's as packed as it would be like on a space station where there's like little tchotchkes around, but there's also like tons of like gear as well. And even just the way that the sound changes whenever she's inside a place with oxygen and how like all of a sudden you can hear more stuff. And one of the interesting things, especially in the the silent space version, because usually anytime the airlock is going, there's usually some like music playing underneath it, but that they like each of the actors wait for the sound to come back in. And then that's like whenever they take off their helmets and like whenever they can start hearing the beeping, that's when they know, okay, we're good. And just like stuff like that, that you really don't notice for like a couple times in, but that add to like the whole picture is just astounding to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And John, I, I appreciated what you were saying about um, how even that kind of muted dull sound piece fits in with the story of loss. And that was one of the things that always strikes me so hard. And I think hit me a little bit harder this time around is how every piece of what's happening um every piece of this experience in, in space is so emblematic of the experience of grief. And it's almost this personification. It's like making an emotion into an environment, which is fascinating. Um, and yeah, just kind of this sense of everything is, is muffled. Everything's muted. Everything feels far away. You're not directly coming into contact with anything. You know, you're, you're experiencing the world through this suit, through this, you know, this piece of glass and you're separated from everything and yet you still have to interact with it. Um, I think it's just brilliant storytelling. Um, the fact that none of the rules work, right? Like the part where she's like, oh, you know, I'm used to working in the basement at the hospital and gravity actually works there. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just let the, um, like the bolts the fall. Drop, like yeah. after, after I unscrew it, I just kind of let it fall, but now it's floating away. And just everything that you're used to just no longer works. And then I was really hit by, she kept saying when she's just spinning out and crying out, you know, towards uh, Matt, she just keeps saying, I'm untethered, I'm untethered, I'm untethered. And man, like just that visual of drifting, floating, spinning off into space and you're alone. And, you know, even this idea that all she's doing is trying to survive and suddenly that just seems like the tallest order, you know, um, just to get by. Oh, and just being, just being disoriented, um, everything being harder than it should be. Like yeah. even kind of like of the spacesuit of, and just being in space, how everything is so much more clumsy. Mm-hmm. It takes so much more effort yep. and like literally of like the oxygen running out of her body, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and just how hard it is for her to breathe and just do kind of like the simplest things and just like these, these other measures that kind of take into it and how literally when she's with Kowalski, she can't even move. Like she is completely dependent on one person mm-hmm. to like pull her along. Yes. And that like 
you know, everything in his suit is fine. Like he still has oxygen. Yeah. He can still move. He has all yeah. of that sort of stuff. And she's literally just being like dragged along behind. Mm-hmm. And that's like the best that she can do. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, 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 yes. To all of those things. I think it's so effective. And one of the things that Connor and I were talking about was I feel like it could be so corny in that, you know, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, it could be, you know, you're you just can't like quite get a grip on like you could almost get too specific with the allegory that's happening and be like, yeah, like grief feels like getting your foot tangled up in like the, you know, the straps from the parachute and, you know, you could get kind of over the top. And I think that if, you know, Corona was going for those really over the top two on the nose comparisons that it would be really corny and no fun to watch. But I think that he just recognized somehow that this environment would take care of it itself. If that makes sense, like this environment is, is the character and I don't have to go in and try to plant. You don't have to do the whole, you know, what is the whole, like you play the queen record backwards and it says mm-hmm. like worship Satan or whatever, you know, it's not, it's not that level. Um, of direct um, correlation but it's just it's like he trusts this environment that he has tapped into to do the hard work of drawing the comparison to the heart of the story which is what does it mean to lose someone what does it mean to go on living what does it mean to live life in the face of death both your own and you know the people that you love um and yeah i just i just think he executes it perfectly Mm -hmm. and even two parts of that as well i think one, even just the representation of them finding the other dead astronaut and her seeing, oh, someone else in this position who was like only tethered on, like died from this. Mm -hmm. And like that emblem for her and like the fear that kind of comes from that. And then moving past that, whenever they get to the space station and her having to let go of Kowalski and like him being her like lifeline, literally doing everything for her. And just, I think the brilliance in Cuaron's directing and like her acting is that all of her movements are like so slowed whenever she is the one who's like in charge and she is just like kind of like barely moving, waiting for him to talk. Even though like if you're just watching like the action of it, you're like, get inside, get inside, you're running out of air. But like, you know, she literally like everything is so hard for her and she Mm -hmm. can barely like lift an arm. And I mean, I think that that's just Mm -hmm. so powerful. Mm -hmm. That, uh, That shot with the guy's head where you can see through it in 3D is... Oh, that is like a jump scare, basically, because you can see through, like, the depth is so different. It really, it freaked me out. It's not that gory. You can't really see that much, but it's just the stunning. I'm seeing Earth through someone's head. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that that real, I mean, it's still pretty stunning, I think, seeing that. But, like, that was a couple moments where, like, the 3D really hits you a little bit harder. It's almost like... There's two movies, the first two thirds, and then you have the the finish, the sprint to the finish is she's a completely changed person. There's really a, the movie changes too, you know, it stops being so struggling, everything's struggling, she starts to really have, be sure of herself, and the action is a little bit less, there's a little less uncertainty in what she's doing, although they keep doing the thing where she opens the door and then swings back. They do Uh, that, I think, twice, maybe three times, and it's just like, all right, She would learn at some point. She would learn how to open a door. But besides that, she's pretty confident later in the movie and getting in the Chinese space station. And she's, you know, she's like, if I fail, I fail. If I don't, you know, she's sort of not wor- as worried about it in some ways. And that's what gives her the confidence to succeed. But 
I'm going to say something that's going to make you mad, Creed. I, yeah. I, I think this is the most spiritual space movie ever made. <laughs> <sighs> A floating baby is not transcend- transcendence. <laughs> A column in a bedroom is not transcendence. I like 2001, but this is a more spiritual movie than 2001. Well, let me let me throw out another one okay. at you then. Yeah, here uh, we go. Do you know what it is? Solaris. Solaris, yeah. Solaris. Oh yeah, I haven't seen it, but yes. Okay. That one hurts pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I would say it. But not the George Clooney one. <laughs> the the Russian one, yeah. Well, I feel like this almost like fits into this very small category that I want to see grow because I love the two films that fit into it so much of this and First Man. Mm-hmm where it's just this incredibly intimate look at the human condition. Again, where I think Why First Man, have you seen it, John? Yes. Okay, so I think it works in all of the exact same ways as um, you know, as Gravity in that it is it is telling two stories but telling them so cohesively and so fully. Um, I just I don't know, I just want all of these really really intimate personal, you know, um contemplative looks at humanity but in space just mm-hmm. makes it like 10 times better you know and and i really do think like kind of going back to my two words like the universal particulars i really do think that it adds this level when there is organically shots in the movie of a person who's gone through this very specific experience looking over their shoulder and seeing planet earth and seeing all of the people down there who are having the same experiences 10 times over. And I think that's why the radio transmission that she picks up on that, I think that's why it tears us all up, honestly, is she feels so alone and she feels so isolated. And here's this stranger who doesn't speak her language and here's a baby crying. And if we understand one thing, or I think is a baby crying or I think he's laughing actually. Um, I think it's crying actually, yeah. That's why he Um, sings the lullaby. And even that, like singing a Mm -hmm. lullaby to your baby um, and she's kind of saying like, I had a baby too, you know, like it's, it's just such this, um, this core experience where you can be out in space and connect with one other human at random and share this, um, this bond that is just beyond words. And I think that's what first man does too, in a lot of ways. Um, this whole, like, <laughs> you have to go to space to figure out who you are is <laughs> just, Again, I just want like 10 movies like that and I'll watch every single one and and just love it because I think it's so beautiful. They also have two of the best scores ever. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the music is so key in this. If like Claire had the good idea of like kind of breaking this down through each of like the Oscars and kind of going through it. So sound editing, sound mixing. It also won score as well, mm-hmm. which I think it completely earned and deserved like I listened to it so much whenever it came out and I haven't really since, but man, like listening to it, like just the, the album itself was just like, Oh, so emotional. It's so powerful. And watching the silent space version, you just kind of realize like how key all of that is because Cordon was saying there was a point where he's like, maybe we should just do it without any music and let it just be all, you know, whatever is happening sound. And the movie is still good, but it just doesn't, it's nowhere near as effective it somehow like speeds everything up. And I think it's kind of good that it blocks out like some of the the dialogue because it almost becomes distracting at points, especially the final scene whenever Ryan is like getting out of the water and walking instead of just like the this powerful, uplifting, just beautiful, amazing vocals behind it. It's just her just kind of, 
and like just the deep breathing, which is still good. But like, I'm like, it just doesn't hit like that last just, you know, just the rising vocals is just amazing and just gives me chills every single time. And you're talking about first man, that's circling back on that. One thing that's interesting is I, I think I like first man a lot, but it's sort of they're hiding they're hiding it from you a little bit like you you have to you know it's a lot of he's a very inscrutable guy and and so you don't really see it's a good performance but you don't really see the depth of his emotion until it all hits you all at once at the end with the uh we'll call possibly apocryphal space littering anecdote <laughs> at the end is is so powerful because it all of a sudden it reveals everything at once whereas this it does sort of switch uh, when she has her vision, um, but it's more drawn out. There's more of an arc in terms of seeing her open up and, and, and realize, you know, what she needs to, to do physically to get out of there, but also, like, emotionally. I love that scene where Kowalski comes back. I love it so much because in the theater, it's sort of a deuce ec machina type thing. Like, Oh my gosh, like really they did this, but you love it. You love it when you hap when it happens, but if it actually were to happen, it would be the dumbest thing ever. Right. And so by just by the time you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. And she's same thing when she's kind of like, this doesn't make sense. He's gone. And it's, you know, sort of either her realizing it or it's sort of a, of a, a vision of what she's supposed to do. And, I think that's what makes this movie so good. That part uh, is at the core because it it does... Space movies tend tend to be be cold and overly materialistic too. Like like you said, I I would also love these movies to be more common because space is such a transcendent... You can use it for such amazing stories of isolation but also like togetherness and all these things about the human condition put in that extreme circumstance... And you can tell stories about, you know, really reaching out and, and transcendent uh, concepts that totally are ignored in most space movies. And so to have this be a movie where belief is important, it's belief in herself, but it's also a vague sense of belief in something more because there's prayers involved with this. Like she, she says, I don't know how to pray. I wish I knew how to pray. Pray Nobody for me. Nobody ever taught me how. Nobody ever taught me how. Pray for me. Pray. You know, it's not just him coming and saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, figure out, figure out your crap <laughs> and do do this and then and this. It's There's something she has to reach beyond herself for that switch to happen. And And at the end, she says, thank you. There's a prayer at the end, you know. So I would love more of these movies, but I think this also does something unique that isn't common in any movie that's even about emotion is that it does it acknowledges um that that's it's not just solve a problem it's not just you know fix yourself by by doing something it's 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 more than that right this isn't a purely humanistic film where it's about the human spirit conquering all i mean not not maybe in that more traditional way and there is this this reaching beyond there is this vague sense of the ones that we love are still with us and we're moving forward with them and I think that's to me that's the turning point in this film because you know there's these lines from Matt of like I mean the part where he says you have to learn how to let go as she's physically letting him drift off into space man like that's already the third time I'm crying <laughs> and it's just so um so rich um 
But I do feel like there's this sense of not that she's letting go of her daughter. And I think that's what this, this film does so well is the goal of grief is never to let go or to move on from the person. The goal is to let go maybe of what your life was before you lost them and letting go of control, right? Even the fact that she's driving around in her car because that's what she was doing whenever she got the call that her daughter had died. You know, there, there's some sense of exerting control, of exerting power in a situation where you feel so utterly powerless. And the fact that it isn't this like, yep, I moved on and now I just like don't care, you know, or I've moved on and I'm persisting. I, I think that there's the sense of she connects with her daughter maybe for the first time since she lost her um, in a really, really profound way where... Um, and even her immediately connecting with Matt and realizing that he is gone too. And just kind of how the people that we've lost are the ones who then lead us forward in this life. And that he's like turning to, you know, she's turning to him and saying like, tell her that I miss her and tell her, you know, that I'm thinking about her all the time. And it's this continuation of that relationship as it transforms into something new and something different than what it was before. And, and with that, there does come this kind of spiritual element of she's still out there somewhere. She's still existing in some space. And because of that, I can move forward too. Um, I think at its core, this movie is about accepting death. And, um, you know, if you want to kind of talk about this through like an existentialist lens, I think it's like the perfect existential movie because, I mean, I'm more familiar with existentialism in therapy than I am just purely as a philosophy. But I know within therapy... The goal of existential therapy is to grapple with these questions and ultimately to accept death in a way that makes you live life more fully and more richly, which I think is true of just the the broader philosophy. And that's what you see happen. And that's what I think is so powerful about, you know, you kind of talked to John about this, this change, like there's just kind of this like flip of a switch. And it's not her saying, I feel like a lot of other especially space films, the flip of that switch would have been like, I'm going to live, you know, and like, I've decided that I'm going to live. And that's the ultimate thing. And it's the human spirit, you know, overcoming, overcoming death, whereas here is an acceptance of death. And she says, I'm either going to burn up in this atmosphere in the next 10 minutes, or I'm going to make it. And then she says, in either way, it's going to be one hell of a ride. And that's the moment where she's like able to move forward. Like that's the flip of the switch. And I think that that's something so unique that this film does that a lot of others don't dare to do where the protagonist almost doesn't care about the outcome. Um, And I guess that's where it goes to kind of existentialism. Like the goal or the purpose of the point isn't in the outcome. It's in the choice and it's her choice to move forward and to try and to accept the outcome. Yeah, so yes, all that to say, John, I completely agree. There's so much kind of spiritual stuff wrapped up into this that does not fall just into that pure humanistic um, kind of Western model that I think is just done so powerfully. Well, we've talked a lot about the emotional and story side. I think we should also dig into sort of the technical side more so as well, because that is just one of the things that's so astounding about this is... I was a little bit nervous, like rewatching it. I was like, "Gosh, I really hope that it the CG still holds up." And it does. Like, there's maybe like two or three things that I noticed throughout, but the majority of it, I was just amazed because it's literally like all CG except for like their faces and like Ryan's body. Like, whenever she's just like in the tank top and shorts, like everything else is all CG, and except for I think the Soyuz set, that's real but even still 
Like the whenever she's in the ISS space station floating around, nothing there. Like it's just her body. And that's just one of the most amazing things to me is like how effectively they use it in here. Because I feel like nowadays, you know, we just cringe at a ton of CG. Like that's one of my big beefs with like the Marvel movies. I'm like, there's just way too much CG where there doesn't need to be. And I feel like everything was just so well executed in this. And they knew that they could handle it and knew that they could give it this look that it is like, you know, photorealism. Like I, especially in the theater, I just remember being so absolutely blown away and like thinking like there had to have been, you know, some sort of model that they were using or, you know, like sets that they were using. But like, no, except for like whenever she's in the Soyuz, like everything else is just CG. And that is just absolutely breathtaking what they are able to accomplish with it and even just like the use of like the zero g for them is just like so well executed and they were talking about like ways to how they're going to do it and so they were talking about maybe we'll do it like apollo 11 where you know they went up in the vomit comet where they literally had what was it like 20 seconds to film whenever they're in zero g the shot or something something along those lines it's pretty short yeah yeah, and he's like, we can't do that. We're going to do long takes. There's no way that we can do that. We need something else. And so they just, yeah, but so they do like a bunch of wire work, which is just absolutely impressive. But most of the time they're working in this thing called a light box, which is this giant box of LED screens, which project the light because it was so hard to control because there's so much spinning. You can't just like have a rig with a light on it just kind of spinning around someone like there needs to be a base for that and so they were able to do that it almost seems kind of like a pre like mandalorian of what they're doing of like the projected backgrounds because that's what they do for a lot of it and was really helpful for them but i I mean you can see footage of them using it and it's just crazy that the stuff that they're doing because they put the actors in like this harness that kind of wraps around their waist and they're like almost like in an ice cream cone is what it kind of looks like. And it like spins them around and moves. And they have these giant camera cranes that are hooked up to computers for like just very fine camera movements that can do like those crazy zoom in and spins. And the actors were just saying like it scared the crap out of them because this <laughs> camera's flying, you know, at 20 miles an hour and just stops like an inch from your face. And like it's just horrifying. Like you could just get <laughs> smashed by these things. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, th- I think this is one of the best movies for CG, maybe if the best I've ever seen, because you and I are both the same. We both love directors that have an obsessive commitment to physical effects. And I think this movie is the one that convinced me that it's not really about physical effects. It's about when you're doing physical effects, it forces you to be intentional about the decisions you're making. And if you're doing, you know, putting the effort into it and CG is the same way. CG is easy to flip that switch. I remember Walking in, you know, you when we were in college, we were roommates, and you were watching one week, you were watching the Inception extras, and there was this discussion, and it was this, he was like, well, Christopher wanted uh, the fight scene to be filmed physically, so we had to build this, this giant, you know, hallway, and then they go, it goes into super, super detail, and then the next week, you were watching episode one or something, Star Wars, <laughs> and they're like, they're like, George really wanted this scene, so we made it on a computer. And then they just went to the next thing. That was it. Like, it was so quick. And it's like, yeah, just the amount of time that had to go into the shot. So this is stunning how little physical every, I mean, even like you said, the bodies, it's just faces for most of the movie. But it works because, A, I think they picked a good setting. Space is 
not that this was easy, but space is relatively easy to do. There's easy math involved. You can calculate everything. Everything's kind of clean. So the only thing that was hard, I didn't know that they did the light thing, but that does not surprise me because the hard part is getting the lighting right. And boy, is the lighting in this great. Mm-hmm. You get a sense of time from the, there. You know, I don't know how fast it's supposed to be. Like every twenty minutes, they're rotating. You know, orbiting the Earth or whatever. Well, I don't know what mm-hmm. it is. Ninety minutes, something like that. Yeah, ninety minutes is the the cloud. But there's definitely a daylight cycle going on in the background, and you get that when she's spinning. And the lighting is the only thing that's challenging, and they put a lot of effort into that because it's not just the normal clean space look. They really committed to the low-orbit look, which is very painterly, honestly. Yeah, the I, effects this, of the atmosphere and reflections oh my gosh. and all that. It's crazy. It's be- beautiful. I, there was a moment in this movie where I was like, why in sci-fi movies do they spend so much time in space and then they get to the planet and they skip past the atmosphere so fast? Like that's the classic Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever. Like you just go real quick and, and it's like that's the most beautiful part of space is right near the atmosphere. And I, I realized that there's not very many movies that linger in that space visually because – probably because it's hard to do. But man, this movie nails that feeling of being right on the horizon, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really incredible just all of the ingenuity that went into making this movie and making everything kind of happen with it. And I, it's one of the other things that I applaud Sandra Bullock for. Mm. Doing stuff like that is so isolating. Mm-hmm. And just being in a, a box of light with a camera mm-hmm. for 12 hours a day mm-hmm. and like rarely, you know, any other sort of like human interaction aside from like maybe voices. And which she said like really helped her performance because she felt so alone. But just Mm -hmm. that saying, it was like so mentally and physically taxing. Like it took so long for them to get the actors in and out of the harnesses that she's like, just keep me in it all day Mm -hmm. and would be in there for like 10 hours. Can we talk about Sandy's performance now? I'm just dying to talk about it. Um, Also, that makes me think of that that story from The Hobbit where... Ian oh, McKellen. I thank you. I always get him mixed up with Patrick Stewart. Um, where Ian McKellen is sitting at a table in front of a green screen. So, like, you know, it's one of the scenes with all the dwarves. And he just starts crying. And he said, this isn't why I became an actor. Because he's just by himself pretending like he's talking to other people in front of a camera. And how hard that was for him. And I think we can all appreciate now the feeling of a full workday without interacting with another human being and how that would impact, um, you know, Sandra Bullock's performance. And I'm glad that she was able to kind of, you know, utilize that. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't know everything that you're saying about like the CG and to deliver such a convincing performance with just your face is... Uh, I just love her. Um, I just love her so much. I think she does a brilliant job. And I think that George Clooney is remarkable. And he is so effortless as an actor. And I think that's exactly what this role needed. And I was asking Connor, I was like, you know, did Coron have this pairing in mind when he was writing it? Because it feels like it was written for them, especially I would say, especially Matt's character. It's George Clooney, you know, to an extent, like, yep, that's George Clooney, just being suave and confident and reassuring. And having so much just control over the role. But yeah, I, I think that every aspect of this was perfect. It was kind of funny because Connor and I were talking about Sandra Bullock. And um, 
he hadn't really watched much with her. Whereas like I grew up with like Miss Congeniality is how I knew Sandra Bullock. And so, you know, she's so charming and such a comedic actor. Um, While You Were Sleeping is one of my favorite movies of all time. One of my favorite rom-coms. I watch it every Christmas. And so that's kind of how I grew up with her. And now seeing her in such a serious role, I was struck from the very beginning on this, you know, this being my second watch and kind of knowing one from like a clinical perspective, knowing more about depression and grief. And then two, just from, I think I was paying attention to the performance maybe more than I did when I was in high school. And even just kind of the the gate, like the way that she is talking, kind of this every word is hard to get out, almost like it's not worth the energy that it's taking to get every word out and just making you convinced from the start, like that this is a depressed woman. And I think that that you know, you were saying like people were kind of making the comment like all she had to do was breathe hard. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like she did so much work. She did so much with so little to convey that this is a woman who's just out of her element, doesn't feel like she's supposed to be there both physically and like her emotional space. And again, just knowing that really she's just using her face for most of that is just so good. Mm -hmm. So, so good. And to make an engaging movie that's an hour and a half long, that is mostly, you know, Sandra Bullock and a little bit of George Clooney and to be so captivated and to never feel bored. Um, It doesn't feel like it's one of those movies where it's like, okay, honey, like, let's watch this movie and it's kind of boring, but it's good for you type of thing. Like, it doesn't feel like broccoli. Like, you're genuinely wrapped up in the emotion and the action. Do you want to know who the original pairing was that was hired on? So Matt Kowalski was going to be played by Robert Downey Jr. Oh, no. And then Ryan Stone was going to be played by Natalie Portman. Oh, my God. Okay, Natalie can do anything. Yeah. But Robert like, Downey Jr. cannot do anything. <laughs> I would No, I think he's a good actor. I just, I can see why they would want him for this role. But I think he has a different type of suave than George mm-hmm. Clooney has. And George Clooney just absolutely nails it. Mm-hmm. I, think that, I think he would have been great. It would have been a different yeah, it character. Been but it, he would have been. Look, if there's one thing Robert Downey Jr. can do, it's wisecrack and zoom around in a suit that's what he knows how to do (laughs) he's getting paid the big bucks to do that true well but i feel like george clooney has this he's the type of person that i look at and i just trust him immediately right like he has those like dad vibes um oh brother where art though (laughs) yeah it's like you trust him even when you shouldn't (laughs) whereas i feel like robert downey jr does not elicit that just like really core just like i i just trust you with my life and i don't know why and i think that's why george clooney is so perfect i think sandra bullock does an amazing job this is not a criticism of her this is this is i'm trying to be positive is i don't think either one of them are the classic what you would think of as put it you know sam rockwell right in moon I don't know if he's a method actor, but he's in that class of like what people think of as like, just put the camera on them. They're going to own the entire movie. Neither of them are that, you know, whether that's fair or not, their range on both of them are, they, neither of them are like they could play every character in the world. Yes. You know, Sandra Bullock plays a certain kind of person. She's a comedic actor. She's a certain kind of normal, you know, everyday uh, person. And that I think the casting in, comes into this being really important because they're that's who she is in this. And so her like opening up is very believable because she's already a very reserved type of person. But I think this movie really drives home uh, that acting isn't just the pontificating, you know, in front of a screen, in front of people. Like there are certain types of method actors that wouldn't be able to do what she did because they'd have to be in character the whole time. You literally can't do that. She was willing to sit in that suit or that gear or that equipment for for a really long time she's such a good such a good work ethic 
and talent combined in a way that you usually don't see in these types of one-person movies. You know, this is really she she's really worked really hard on this character, and I think it's great because it's not just the flashy performance; it's the effort put in. You know, sometimes the effort is just sitting sitting in the ridiculous. I don't. Even, I've seen pictures of it. It's, it's just ridiculous stuff that she had to deal with, especially in the station stuff. That's a different side of, I think, acting and the and the craft that goes into it than then gets talked about. And so I'm glad she gets cr- credit for. I don't like it when people say, you know, sh- she didn't do much. She it was all, <laughs> she did so much. It was yeah. a lot of it's a lot of yeah. work. Yeah, and I appreciate what you said about um, she kind of plays the every woman constantly. Um, I'm just thinking of like right, like that's the whole plot of Miss Congeniality is let's throw her in with a bunch of these beauty stars and just let her you know kind of represent the every woman and then um in uh, like two weeks notice you know she's she's the assistant the uh, the aspiring lawyer but she's you know juxtaposed against this wealthy millionaire who's you know just kind of full of it and then um and while you were sleeping again this starstruck woman who works at the train station and is in love with this handsome you know rich young businessman you know so i think that that's the part of that performance that translates or of, of her kind of core acting, you know, resume in some ways that um, translates really well is not that she's just a stand in for like women. I don't mean that, but I think that she is so relatable. You know, there's, there's some, some actresses like you throw Michelle Pfeiffer in there and right, like you're, you're lost before you even begin. Like she couldn't be this like glamorous movie star but just needs to be someone kind of simple like humble down to earth that you can look at and feel feel like she's your best friend you know Mm. and that you could just chat with her and I think it it really grounds the performance um in a way that makes her really accessible emotionally to relating yep the last uh technical point I want to get at is editing because it did win for editing as well which I think it definitely deserved and one of the I can't remember if Walter Murch said this, but just one of the great editors said, you know, editing is knowing when not to cut as well, like as much as it is knowing when to cut. And I think that's one of the things that's so effective in this film of just letting there be these long drawn out scenes. And I think that's kind of be to be expected because of Quaron. And that's one of the things that he's known for. But I think they take it to new levels with this where they literally could have gotten any angle in the world that they wanted. And it could have just been this really kinetic jumpy sort of film like i feel like most other space blockbusters Mm -hmm. would have been where it's just very erratic like lots of hard cuts to like extreme close-ups of people and like all this sort of back and forth but there's this beautiful fluidity of Mm -hmm. it where you're literally just being like flown through this and it's so elegant and graceful and i love that (laughs) what is he laughing about (laughs) sorry i just i just imagined and what popped in my head is like what it that scene where they're like trying to get in this space station I just imagine that cut by <laughs> like Armageddon like by style, Michael, yeah, uh-huh. t- by Michael Bay, the spin yeah, around like, like, like dun, 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 the, the dun, dun. High, yeah, like the the you know at the beginning, yeah, you get to spin around to see the scale of it, and then it's just cut, 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 because you know it's a bunch of shards of of you know metal that just seems like a justification to have a lot of cuts, you know. The, yeah, I feel like they, they avoided the temptation to have a lot of cuts for a chaotic movie, and that makes it more intense. And obviously, the the oneer at the beginning is legendary, and, and I love it. It's amazing. You don't you don't get a cut till you have... It's the only movie I can think of other than Rope or 
1917 that I can think of that doesn't have a cut until the conflict has started. Like, you don't even get a cut until you get the tension, Yeah, basically. Yeah, and one of the other things, too, of, I think, a take that could have been, like, really easy to have been chopped up, but that is actually, like, maybe the most tense scene for me is whenever she is in the Soyuz model, but then, like, has to go outside to, like, unhook the, or unbolt the parachute, and, like, at first you just see kind of one piece of metal fly by, and you're like, wait, Mm -hmm. did I see that? And then just, like, without her, like, knowing it until, like, it's like flying in and when she turns around and they're just seeing everything just getting destroyed. And that's also just one of the best sound mixing and sound editing and score moments when you just see these explosions, but don't hear anything. And mm-hmm. Stephen Price and talking about the score, he's like, since it was in space, we couldn't have explosions. So we needed to have the score be the explosions and it needed to take on those sorts of roles. And I think it's just so effective like that. Can we talk about this film without talking about a really, really, what I thought was a really crappy space film in the past few years? Do you know what I'm talking about? Ad Astra? Ad Astra. I did not like it. Connor and I fight about this. I hate it. Thank you. Wait, you you liked Ad Astra? I didn't like it. I thought it was interesting. I thought there were some points that were really fascinating, but I didn't really like it. Oh, I was so excited for Ad Astra, and then I was so disappointed. And there were some elements where I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like, space pirates on the Mm -hmm. moon, monkeys on a spaceship. Like, oh my gosh. I was so thrilled by some of those visuals, and just like, yes. Like, I want more of whatever this little kernel that you're giving me is. But, like, I just could not take Brad Pitt's performance. I just... Oh, it was just painful. I was like, why do I care about this person? Like, I have no reason to. And then it just goes completely, like, yeah. off the charts at the end, just with the whole thing with his dad. And I just, I don't remember a whole lot because I didn't have a reason to hold on to my memories of that movie. It's not one that I ruminated over. But wasn't there something of, like, his dad was still alive out in space? Base, and I just shooting remember, like, like sound waves out yeah and I just remember like these purple hazy clouds and like his dad floating off into space or something <laughs> yeah I kind of don't really remember the end there's a moment in this movie that I thought of at Astra which was when she jumps out when this movie came out it was all like it's super accurate I mean geographically in space it's not but the movie earns some of the Hollywood moments at the end I think and that was the thing that popped in my head is a moment where she jumps out of the Soyuz and has to use the the uh, fire extinguisher to get to the Chinese station. They earn that a little bit. Like they've earned that with sort of more realism before. I realized watching this is like, oh, that's not that different than what happens in Ad Astra where he like surfboards through the rings of Saturn or whatever. But that moment hit so much worse in Ad Astra because it just, they didn't earn it. They didn't have spacewalk stuff. So it was just like, you describe Ad Astra, you list everything that happens in it, and I would think that's one of the greatest movies. I would love that movie. And then when you watch it, it's like just nothing. It's just – it seems like a blend of other better movies. Yes. Yes. I definitely agree. There was so much on paper. On paper, I'm like, this is freaking cool. I want everything that is in this movie. And then when you see it, I the performance was so dry. Many performances were really dry. It just – promised so much and delivered so little and I was so disappointed (laughs) um and I don't know I'm curious what you guys kind of think about this like 
I guess since we're talking about the 2010s, like space films in the 2010s, and that's part of why I bring it up, like Ad Astra. And then the other big one that we have to talk about, I feel like, is Interstellar. And mm-hmm. I feel like that also fits in with this, again, kind of, John, what, what you and I are a little obsessed with of give me the really emotional space movies. And that's one that I actually did see at the Asylum uh, Springs, Asylum 6. Oh, man. Um, that was my experience with that. And... I just remember, again, I had that same experience of being on the edge of my seat the entire time, being like, what's happening? And of course, of course, this one definitely has like the two emotional moments where you're supposed to cry. Like, you know, whenever he gets back from the planet where time moves differently and sees the videos of his kids growing up, like I just sobbed. So yeah, John, to answer your question, I cry at almost every movie I watch, um, (laughs) if we're being honest. And then of course, whenever you realize like he's you know he's her ghost type of thing, um, mm-hmm. and he's been with her all along and all of that, so I I think that it it does kind of cross over into that a little bit. I don't think it's as purely that like you know kind of Connor and I were saying that gravity is so tight like there is nothing superfluous in it. There's nothing that. I feel like Conan was just like, oh, this would be cool. Whereas like so much of Interstellar is Christopher Nolan being like, but you know, it would be cool. Like this really wicked little robot that looks like, like a Swiss army knife, you know? Um, I and love we him. Love He's it the so best. Much. He's so much. the best. He's my, he should have won for best supporting actor. Um, <laughs> Alan Tudyk. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, what are your guys' yes. kind of thoughts of like this movie within the 2010s and kind of this wave of space movies and what does it mean for where we're going from here? I have my three, I call it the space trilogy, Mm. which is not, that's already a thing, (laughs) but it's moon, gravity and interstellar are my three favorite from uh, moon. Moon, I guess is Oh nine or something, but that, that era. And I think those three are sort of three points on a, on a spectrum of like the different ways you can go. This is more like pure action and pure, like really, really focused on one character. Whereas Moon is the same way, but it's just sort of the drama. You don't, the action is not really, it's just a character piece. And then Interstellar is more sort of in between those two, I think. But it's more ambitious in some ways about the human condition instead of just being about one person. And I think it's slightly less successful, but I still love it. And it has organ music in it, which is great. <laughs> and all space movies should have more organ music. In Gravity it. has but, some organ in it that they throw yes. in there. Uh, I think uh, that's actually, Interstellar is a great example of just put the camera in front of Matthew McConaughey and let him act. Like that's amazing. Like the movie is more relying on the performances and the the logic that he's put and, together yeah. in this <laughs> script and Anne Hathaway. Yeah. So I think those three are sort of like the, where they've been successful and kind of um, different ways to do human stories in space. Um, I like those three because I don't think either one of them were, they weren't influenced by each other. They were all independent and Ad Ad Astra, I think is you sort of start to see people copying that and that's why it's not as successful, but um, those are my big three. One thing I'll say also, which I know is going to make you sad, John, uh, I was actually kind of disappointed by Moon. I'm not a huge fan of it. I think it was built up so much and it just didn't hit me where I thought it would. But I kind of have like a space quadrilogy, which is like (laughs) Gravity, Interstellar, First Man, and WALL-E. And those to me are like just... Like you said, the uh, the what? (laughs) Like the four perfect. Yeah, and just like so emotional. And I think that's also what really gets me as well. And one of just the most effective things for me 
But I honestly don't think that's where space films are going anymore Mm -hmm. because I think there's this genre that we really love. But then there's also the other genre, which was started by like Avatar, the big bombastic Mm -hmm. sort of stuff, which, you know, Avatar and then also Star Trek starting up again and then like Guardians of the Galaxy and Star Wars and, you know, all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff, which has its own place and is fun in its own right. But I think that's where more of it's going. And even as like, kind of more Marvel films are going like into space, like even Infinity War and Endgame and that sort of stuff that now theaters or not theaters, sorry, that studios are realizing like, okay, that's where like a lot of our big bucks are for like the bombasticism of it. Yeah, I feel like it's funny that we're... Oh, go ahead, John. I was just gonna say, I think these are called hard sci-fi. I don't <laughs> know if, if um, Interstellar doesn't count as hard sci-fi, but it's sort of tonally hard, like it tries to be where you're trying to follow the rules of space. And I think that's just never going to be, it's almost like all of these are the same story as gravity where you want to tell a story and then you realize space is the way, the place to tell the story. And so I hope that they do more, but I I almost, I just want people to do it because it's a good, I, I, I think, I hope this reveals that it's a good setting for effective storytelling. Um, Moon is great, I think, because it doesn't try and do all that much, and it realizes that's a great place to do isolation. You know, it doesn't have to be a lighthouse. You know, it can be <laughs> it can be in space, and so I do hope that people just start picking space as a setting simply because it helps you tell a story. In, but yeah, I, I wouldn't even consider like avatar space movie because it's just sci-fi and it you know has a couple of space but something about zero gravity space station like it's a different living and it's even more i think argue it's more otherworldly than being on other worlds typically in fiction actually because like living on pandora is weird but like you have gravity you have you know everything's the same it's just different yeah. it's except just, for the it's space more rocks the, yeah it's more it's more the frontier than than space whereas space is is its own thing that we can almost not comprehend what it's like to be there so i think it's effective yeah no i i think that's a really good point of these being much more grounded um space stories and that space happens almost happens to be the setting instead of we're trying to build entire worlds oh i just had a thought and where did it go one movie that i will say that space (laughs) space apparently um one movie that i think predates this that i know that Connor hasn't seen, but I'm curious if you have, John. Um, I think Contact, which also has Matthew McConaughey um, and Jodie Foster, does a lot of similar things. Kind of before its time of pulling the the heavier emotion into the space movie and letting those two things collide in a really fascinating way. And that one's about aliens. That's back when we were obsessed with like aliens as extraterrestrials, not aliens as James Cameron's. You know, like mm-hmm. um, we're not obsessed with Star Wars. You know, it was kind of this different... Era. I kind of want to see like map out like what has been the waves of space movies for mm-hmm. the past 50 years because um, I think it's really interesting um, so I guess it, it, it had been done before and this was just kind of a different iteration of it that was more more grounded in a lot of ways in reality um, and more about being human stories instead of about creating cool worlds which is why I feel like a lot of the Star Wars and Guardians of the Galaxy and all of that is is more pursuing Oh, I have some opinions about contact, but we can talk about that another time. Disclaimer, I haven't seen it in probably 10 years, but I think I cried at it, John. I think I cried. I've never seen it, so. 
It's not the quality of the filmmaking I have an issue with, but that's fine. <laughs> that's th- a discussion. I think we should wrap this up. First off, I have a, a very, very quick story for this that happened to Riley and I and one of our other friends who will remain nameless for um, the sake of prosecution. But um, <laughs> no, that's extreme. Um, but we were talking about movies and seeing movies in high def because he had just gotten a 4K, Riley had just gotten a 4K TV and like had a 4K Blu-ray player. And so we were talking about what we wanted to watch. And so I said, oh, Gravity would be so good. And Riley was like, yes, that would be amazing. And we turned to our other friend and we're like, what do you think, like Gravity? And they're like, I, I just haven't really seen it. Like, how have you not seen Gravity? It's amazing. And they're like, well, I watched Interstellar and I was like, well, then why do I just need to watch Gravity? You, you have a quota of space, you, you yeah. know, you have to, you, you can only pick one or two. That's, that's the way we feel. And I, I feel it. Yeah. Yep. And Riley wrong. and I just screamed after that. <laughs> Basically the same thing. Not at all. Oh, I've heard this story. I don't remember who it was, but I, I've heard this story. I can story tell you afterwards. You. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's move to trivia and challenge now. Question number one. Wait, so do we both get to answer this? Yeah, you, you both of you can answer this. Cool. In space, no one can hear you fail. <laughs> so as we have said that Gravity was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, which category was Gravity not nominated for? A, Best Picture, B, Costume Design, C, Lead Actress, or D, Production Design? He's definitely nominated for Production Design, Actress, and Best Picture. So I'm sorry, John, do you have a... I was going to say costume design. I think it's costume design. Yep, that is correct. Ding, ding, ding. Space suits are easy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and they were all CG, so. Yeah, well, I mean, they still, like, technically designed it and all that, so it's still a a huge process that they had to undertake. Still still easy, though. (laughs) That's easy. I could do that. I don't know. I've seen a lot of bad space suits, and I think that you can Mm -hmm. make a really good space suit. 2001 has the best space suits. I'm just going to say that. Okay, that's true. That is true. Okay. So as we were saying, they used the light box to give the effect of the light moving around and just kind of get that spinning and actor's performance. How many LED lights were used in the light box? And I'm just going to round for these. <laughs> John looks offended. I know, I know. This is this, this is just question. a guess. How many jelly beans are in the jar? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is just more like because it's crazy how much they used. So I'm just going to round for these. 802,000, 189,000. 73,000 or 524,000? 524,000. I'm going to guess 189,000. The full number is 802,816 LED lights. Wait, is that the biggest number you listed? Yeah. Oh. Oh, well, I'm going to consider that. I got I I was going to say whatever the biggest one was, but then I forgot <laughs> that it, you didn't s- so I'll give you a half. I'm consi- <laughs> I want to have point for that. Oh, wait, say that number again, though, please. 802,816 800. LED lights. Man. Those questions should be listed in chronological order. If you say. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So you can just go the big one, D. <laughs> yeah, in numerical order, yeah. All right, so this is just more of a science question in relation to the film, as space debris plays a huge part in this. Mm. So when there is an explosion or something that happens in space that sends debris hurtling, an object the size of a marble traveling at, and kind of whenever you're spinning around space, you're traveling at 17,000 miles per hour, has the energy equivalent to A, a bullet, B, a car crash, C, a hand grenade, 
or D, a cannon? Car crash. Bullet. Final answer. You I said, said bullet. bullet. It is C, a hand grenade. Oh, wow. Yeah. I listened to Okay. So Got to put my plug for NPR. There's a really interesting NPR shortwave. Um, they do a lot of space things, which I love. Um, but they have one about space debris, and I need to go back and listen to it again after watching this film because it's actually like a problem is oh, there's it's horrifying too much debris like moving around in our atmosphere and i think in the next few years i want to say china is launching the first ever mission to go and like collect space trash it's just just wild so interesting thing to go learn about npr shortwave it's horrifying i've watched a couple videos there's this great youtube channel called chris gazat that does a great video on how to clean up space debris mm-hmm. and yeah it is whenever you see what what it's actually doing and the problems that it causes, you're like, oh, that is horrifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yes, go educate yourself on this. This movie is just one big space environmentalism piece. Right, right, exactly. And I'm here for it. <laughs> we'll have to clean it up. It's more of like a, we're going to solve it when we have to type of thing. Like, yeah. like we're, we're putting off dealing with it, but it's... Uh, How we approach all of it <laughs> with the environment. Yeah. yeah. Love it. All right, you ready for your challenge? Yes. yes. So I was originally wanting to do just list mm. what all of the this one for, but I thought, you know, we have to go through all of that while them. we're talking about it. So this film was listed on AFI's, that's the American Film Institute's top 10 films of 2013. Can you list all 10? Oof. Okay. 12 Years a Slave. Yep. Oh, Doll Spires Club? Nope. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. That was a 13 movie? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's maybe one or two that I think you might not be able to get on here. Um, Wolf of Wall Street? Yep. What else did you say was on that list of movies that came out in 2013? I can't remember. I mean, I can can spitball some movies that came out in 2013. Um, American Hustle? Yep. Okay. Um, Ooh. Philomena? Nope. Hmm. Oh, Great Gatsby? Nope. Really? Okay. Hmm. Blue Jasmine? Nope. Hmm. This list, I'm like, yeah. I, okay. You, I, there's a couple I haven't seen this? on here, but I, I pretty much endorse this list. So Man of Steel isn't on there then. <laughs> yeah. So it's not, right? It's not. Okay, no, good. No, 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 yeah, good, good. No. I'm like, if you endorse it, you don't endorse Man of Steel. Yeah, you got the Martin Scorsese film, so I've got nothing to go off of for you. Well, this movie, that's one. Well, Gravity. Well, Gravity. Yeah, I mean, yes. There we go. Thank you. Gravity. Uh, what else? I'm just trying to rem- think what got nominated for Best Picture because I just I don't remember there being. It was just this and Twelve Years a Slave that people thought had a chance to win. And, yeah, and American, American Hustle. Hustle was nominated for ten Oscars. And American Hustle. Um, yeah. Philomena was nominated for Best Picture. Um, I think there's maybe one other Best Picture nom on here, but most of them aren't nominated. I think was Great Gatsby. I know mean, I already said it. I'm just thinking if Great Gatsby was nominated for not Best, Best Picture. No. Yeah. Um, Do you want a hint? Are any of the yes, other? Please. Wait, wait. First, are any of the other ones Oscar winners from that year? There is one, I think. Do you know what it won for? I, if I say it, you're going to know what it is. Yeah, I am. It's one of my favorite movies of 2013. Spike Jones directed it. Oh yeah, okay. Her, yeah, mm-hmm. yep. Her. It won for best best original screenplay. That's great. Snowpiercer. Nope. Oh yeah. That, what? That came I know. Out that year. I know. Yeah. Okay. Here's here's your hint. Okay. There are two Tom Hanks movies in here. Saving Mr. Banks. Yep. Saving uh, 
Walt Disney. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the same one. What other time? Uh, oh, um, it's, did, is that one Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close? Nope. Came out? No, that was, that, I think, 2011. Was... Captain Captain Phillips? Yep. Mm, that was nominated for, I think, Best Picture. Oh. Yeah, I don't think it won, though. No, no. It didn't. Well, no. 12 Years a Slave won. No, uh, sorry. I don't think it won any Oscars. No, it did not. Connor, Connor, let me sit and memorize all of the Oscar wins from 2013 in preparation for this. <laughs> I just told you to familiarize yourself with movies from 2013. And I did, but... That seems like there's some inherent bias in this competition. It's supposed to be free of bias. <laughs> it's important that, that the, the, the sanctity of the, the competition is I mean, if he's going to play favorites with anyone, you know... <laughs> I was going to text you, John, but I was like, I informed one of them, so... <laughs> Oh, that's how it works. I just want you to know in my family, one time, my family doesn't play board games. It took literally till about two years ago before I get them, get them to play again because what would happen was we were very competitive and we played like apples to apples or something and my dad kept helping my mom. You know, they're <laughs> supposed to all... And me and my brother were like, we're never playing that ever again because you cheated. That's amazing. So, this is a sore spot for me. Okay, no, but are you looking at Google we're right not- now? I see the reflection of... A, of- a white screen. I am absolutely, absolutely looking at Google. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. You have three movies left. Okay. Um, are I have no animated? idea though. Oh, is Frozen on there? No. no. AFI. No, no, no. Oh, no, no. What was the animated movie you said? Oh, um. There are no animated, animated movies movie? on here. Oh. Well, there's, there's, there's be. a Coen Brothers movie on here. 2012, um, Is that when Hail Caesar came out? Nope. No, that's um. That's earlier. That was 2015. Oh, oh, really? It, it's not burn. Burn after reading is earlier. Nope, that's earlier. Uh, it's kind of one that I forget about, but that is definitely a hidden masterpiece. Inside Lewin Davis. Yes. Oh, uh, that was nominated. That okay. was nominated for um. I can't remember what. Uh, but it was best original screenplay, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. These other two are the ones that I think might be hard for you, so I will give you hints. Um, I think if I gave the director for. One maybe both you wouldn't it wouldn't help, but one of them is a state. Like what? the the name of it is just the name of a state. I, I have no idea, Connor. <laughs> right. Just start uh, with not mm, states. It has a great poster. Uh, I think it's in black and white. Oklahoma, California, Oklahoma, Kansas. Oh, black, black. Wait, wait. Black and white. Black and white. Oh my gosh. Uh, I don't know. What, what about an mean? old guy? Do you want me to give it to you? Utah, no, Idaho, Maine. You're, I think you were closer with Idaho, maybe. Montana? Nope. Wyoming? No. North Dakota? No. Oregon. South Dakota? No. Nebraska? It's just, yes. Nebraska. 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 Oh, that was nominated. Oh, yeah. That was nominated as well for a couple. Oh of yeah, mm-hmm. he's a he's a real old dude. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this last yeah. one is a really tricky one that I had kind of forgotten about that I really want to see. It is directed by Ryan Coogler. Who did Black Panther, and also has Michael B. Jordan in it? Twenty thirteen. I just don't know. It was more of an indie film it? that year. Do you want me to just give it to you? I don't know it. Yeah, Fruitvale Station. Oh. Oh yeah. Wait. Okay. Never mind. I thought that came out in twenty fourteen or oh. twenty fifteen, but I was I was moving it around because it came out at the same time as i thought ferguson but i guess ferguson was 2014 i think it was 2014 i'm not sure i was in college so it was okay 14 gotcha 
Well, we did okay, John. I'm proud of us, John. No, that was good. The previous decade, I still haven't sorted into years yet, I think. With yeah. These movies. Uh-huh. It is harder. Yeah, but as we go with previous decades, I'll... I'll I'll pay attention to the next next movie, <laughs> what year it came out. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that wraps us up for this episode. Thank you so much for being on, Claire. It was You're welcome. <laughs> great having you on. And John, do you want to list the next film? Oh, yeah, we're doing Inception. Sorry. <laughs> John is so I, excited. <laughs> no, I'm so excited. I just, you know, it's hard to think of the next movie because I'm just, I was just going to watch that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> It's been. It's about time for me to revisit it. It's been a long time. It's been. I think I've, I've only it. seen it once, and that was in high school. So that would have been probably in 2011. Crazy. Yeah. And we are also having on a special guest for that as well, Luke Hogan, which we are excited to have him back. It's been a while since he's been on, and so we're, we're pumped to have him on for a Christopher Nolan film. It'll be a, a good fit and a good time. So thank you so much for listening. As always, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on YouTube. You can find our videos on there as well. We'd love a review from you guys on iTunes. That just helps make our show more visible. And if you want to follow us on Spotify or whatever you choose to listen to our show, that would be great as well. And also, if you want to send us a DM or an email or anything like that, you're also more than welcome to do that. We love feedback. We love input. And if you have a movie recommendation or even a series recommendation, please feel free (laughs) to shoot that to us because we want to hear it and we'd love to cover that. As always, we got to thank John for the use of the graphic and Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and the outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience.